0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Lionel Corbett. Lionel is a professor of depth psychology at the Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara, California. He's the author of the book, The Religious Function of the Psyche, and many professional articles on the subjects of depth psychology, psychoanalytic self-psychology, and the work of C.G. Jung and Religion. His work focuses on the integration of depth psychology and spirituality into a seamless whole. With Sounds True, Lionel Corbett has published the audio series Spirituality Beyond Religion, an audio program for discovering a vital spirituality that transcends doctrine. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Lionel and I spoke about numinous experiences and how to understand them. We talked about God as an archetype and the psyche's need to find meaning and generate spiritual imagery. We talked about the role of suffering on the spiritual path and how we can understand suffering in terms of our personal destiny calling us forward. And finally, we talked about the nature of faith as a type of inner knowing and the importance of visionary experiences. Here's my conversation with Lionel Corbett. Lionel, you've written a book called The Religious Function of the Psyche, and here at the beginning of our conversation, I'd love to know what you mean by The Religious Function of the Psyche.
1: Well it's a phrase that I um borrowed from Jung from his writings on on religion and um what he's talking about is that the the psyche uh, has a tendency to spontaneously produce experiences of the sacred or the holy he he borrows uh, this from the work of Rudolf Otto who, who in 1917 1918 wrote a book translated into English called The Idea of the Holy, in which he talks about a certain type of religious experience called numinous experiences. And um, when Jung started to hear these kind of experiences in his consulting room, he he decided that they were the same kind of experiences occurring in ordinary people that had occurred to the founders of our Major religious traditions: Jesus and Muhammad and uh, Moses and so on. And um, whereas you, Otto said these are experiences these are like the burning bush, Moses at the burning bush in the Bible, or um, Saul on the road to Damascus, hearing the voice of Jesus saying, "Why do you persecute me?" Those kind of experiences are what Otto meant by numinous experiences. So for Otto, these were experiences essentially of the Judeo-Christian God. And the the development that Jung made was to say these are experiences of transpersonal levels of the psyche or the non-personal levels of consciousness which the individual has access to when these kind of experiences erupt into our awareness. So that's one meaning of the... um, the religious function of the psyche, the tendency to produce those kind of numinous experiences. That's probably the major meaning.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about this word numinous? I don't think that's a word yes. that is part of most people's It's not vocabulary. a commonly
1: used word. Yeah, No. Um, the etymology of the word comes from a Latin noun, a numen, which is spelled N-U-M-E-N, which means a god or a divinity. And there's also a Latin verb, nuery, n-u-e-r-e which means to nod or to beckon so the sense of a numinous experience is of divine beckoning or divine approval you can imagine moses at the burning bush hearing the voice of god talking to him from the burning bush telling him to go down to egypt tell the pharaoh to release the people and so on these are the kind of things that otto and then later jung were talking about but what, what was important to Jung was not the content of the experience. It doesn't have to be a specifically Judeo-Christian content. What he gets at is the quality of the experience is important. Otto said these experiences are mysterious, fascinating, tremendous. They have a certain emotional gripping power. And that's what Jung was interested in because he discovered that when people have these kind of experiences, they... experience has a kind of a healing effect. It tends to bring us what we need. It's always somehow directly related to our own psychological makeup or to what's going on with us at the moment.
0: Now, would you say in your own life there have been numinous experiences that have been tremendously important to you? And if so, could you share one or two with us?
1: Yes. um, Well, the most recent one occurred to me about six years ago. I haven't had many, but I've had enough to convince me of the reality of these experiences. Although we should later talk about the way these can be dismissed, but for me they're, and for most Jungians, they're particularly real. But the one I'm thinking of now is occurred to me about six years ago, um, and it occurred just before I had a very severe illness uh, uh, from which I nearly died, but obviously survived. But just before the illness, I was lying in bed uh, at night. I was wide awake. This was not a dream. And suddenly I realized that next to me, standing beside the bed, there was a tall gray figure. It looked like gray stone, like something like a building would be made of, that kind of gray color, except it was obviously alive. And it looked down at me. It was quite big, and the terrifying, the really terrifying thing was that the figure had three faces. It had a face looking straight forward down at me, and then a, f- a face coming from either side of its head on either side. And this was a, so, it was a, a rather brief visionary experience. It lasted several seconds, but it was very distinct and very frightening. And it has these. Criteria that Otto and Jung write about, obviously very mysterious, tremendous, fascinating, uh, awe-inspiring, AWE awe-inspiring, and and deeply mysterious, and, um, and completely out of the ordinary, very different than an ordinary kind of experience. That's the sort of thing that Jung and Otto were writing about um and there are, these experiences are qu- quite difficult to interpret usually um you recognize them by the emotional quality that they produce um um the difficulty is that it may be hard to know what they mean or where they come from for jung they come from this transpersonal or what's sometimes called the mythopoetic level of the psyche that level of the psyche or that level of consciousness where myth and dream arise. And um, uh, no matter what tradition you were born into or what culture you were born into, this kind of imagery can can show up from any religious pantheon or any mythological system anywhere in the world, any time in history. And that's what makes it often unrecognizable. So this particular experience is, is an experience of what's called a tricephalic god. And if you look in world mythologies, you'll see there are lots of gods and goddesses that have either three heads or three faces. It's a very common mythological motif. And it's what Jung would have called an archetypal motif. Usually the significance of it is that one head, one face or one head um, is looking at the present and one is facing the future and one is looking back into the past. Something like that. So this particular figure, there are lots of choices. I decided this particular figure in the end um, was an image, uh, was a sort of visitation from the mythological Hermes Mercury. And um, this was a a, a, a Greco-Roman god who was a herald and he would appear often with a message um when something was about to happen and sh- surely enough soon after this uh, visionary experience i became ill so in retrospect it looks as if this visitation this numinous visitation was a kind of um warning or or um a, a precursor to the illness as if something was telling me that it was going to happen now, this was helpful to me. Uh, one can wonder how on earth this could be helpful, but the reason it's helpful is it gives you the sense that there's a that when a major event like a serious illness happens, that there's a transpersonal dimension to it, that the event is not some kind of random, meaningless event, but that it's part of the the destiny of the individual. That somehow there's a, there's an important transpersonal process going on. Um, That something, obviously something, uh, in in Jung's case, he would say it's the transpersonal self, the self with a capital S, the the, uh, imago dei, as he calls it, the God image in the psyche. That that uh, is aware of what's going on and it's part of the destiny of the individual to have the experience, something like that. So in that sense, it's a helpful kind of experience.
0: Now, did it only begin to make sense to you, this visionary experience, once you became ill?
1: Yes, it wasn't. uh, I didn't know what it meant at the time. Um, I had a, a sense that this was a premonition, but of course I didn't know what was happening. And then a couple of months later, I became ill, and then in retrospect, it made sense. But it was still helpful.
0: Are you healthy now? Is everything okay?
1: yes, I'm fine now. I had a bone marrow transplant. I had acute leukemia at the time, and then I had a a bone marrow transplant five years years ago, and I'm fine now.
0: Okay. Now, you talked about how there are ways that we can dismiss these kinds of numinous experiences, and I can certainly imagine that. I can certainly imagine someone saying, you know, God, I must have not gotten enough sleep the night before or something like that.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, it's very easy to, um, re- what we call, reduce these experiences. You can dismiss them. Um, you can say they're hysterical or they're, it's a transient psychosis or, um, you know, what were you smoking or you have an overheated imagination. You know, there are all kinds of ways of reducing these kinds of experiences and not taking them at, at face value, but... Um, this sort of depends on your metaphysical commitments if you believe there's a transpersonal or a spiritual dimension of reality then it's simply an eruption of that level into ordinary waking consciousness if you don't think there's a spiritual dimension of reality then you have to come up with some kind of reductive explanation and there are many you know epilepsy psychosis there's a whole list of them so um very much depends on your belief system really how you approach these things
0: Now, let's say somebody's listening and they're reflecting on something from their own past that they could say, yeah, that was a numinous experience, but I never really understood it. I don't think I ever really understood what was happening. Something was happening, but I don't don't really get it. How might you help them find the meaning?
1: Well, what I would do is I'd get a detailed description of the experience, and I I would try to see in what way is the experience connected to what's going on in the person's life? Usually what, what I've found is it's either connected to some developmental difficulty that the person is struggling with or a life situation, an existential crisis of some kind that they're struggling with or you know, an illness or a relational problem, those kind of difficulties. It's always connected to something that's going on in the person's mental makeup. It's never really isolated. Um, And um, if it's a mythological image, I would try to help the person locate it in world mythology or in a a religious system. And the difficulty is it may not be uh, a a mythology that the person knows about. Um, And then I would try to see essentially what the relevance of that figure is to... um, the person's uh, life situation at the moment.
0: Now you mentioned something Lionel that I wasn't clear about. You said the imago dei or the god image. Yes, Help me understand that. The god that.
1: image. Imago dei is Jung's it's simply a latin term. Imago means image, dei means of god. So it's Jung had the idea uh which is not unique to Jung of course, but um he, what he does is he psychologizes the um, Upanishadic notion of the Atman—that there's a divine element, the Atman, in the personality—and what, which is a, of course a very ancient idea—and what Jung does is he talks about how that uh, God image manifests itself psychologically. And basically, his idea is that this is an, an a priori, or that means it's an innate. Aspect of the human being. It's an essence, even though the idea of essence isn't very popular in the academy at the moment. But for Jung, there is this essence, a divine essence in the personality. And then what happens is that local traditions will give it a name. So if you if you're born in a Christian culture, you'll call it Christ. You know, and if you if you were an ancient uh, Norse individual you might call it odin if you were in south america you might call it quetzalcoatl you'll give it the local name for god whatever it is there are thousands of them of course and um uh, shiva you know whatever is the local name but all these according to jung these are all pointing these are all local folkloric names for this um uh, spiritual essence in the personality this divine essence and it can manifest itself in very unique ways within the individual. That's the point. The important point is that it may not manifest itself in in the way that is consonant with the religious tradition in which you are raised. In other words, you, suppose you were raised in a Western Christian tradition. You might uh, experience it in a dream. It's very common for these things to appear in dreams as a Hindu god or goddess or something like that um and that's very disconcerting for people and sometimes when they go to their minister of religion for example i've heard uh, a few dreams in which christ appears as a woman in one dream he appears as an old lady a kind of a grandmother figure and and in that case the um, the dreamer was told but it was clearly christ the dreamer was told by her minister that this that this was a demonic manifestation and that sort of thing is very typical because people were distressed when they get a figure in uh, which which is very numinous, but not the one they were expecting.
0: What I'm curious about is, what if what occurs for you as an image of God is not a figure per se, but mm-hmm. a sense of infinity, or melting yeah. space, or something like that? Yes.
1: No, you're quite right. I didn't mean to suggest that it could only appear as a figure. Um, I mean, you can, you can have numinous experiences. Say you're, um, you're one of, the, you know, there's a whole group of people who are nature mystics who experience the sacred or the holy in the wilderness, for example. They have an, a sense of the presence of the divine uh, in the wilderness. So it doesn't have to be a figure. It can appear in a variety of different ways. Certainly the way you describe it, uh, experiences of unity, of cosmic consciousness, of oneness with all of reality and so on. There's a long list of ways. What what matters is not the content, but the quality of the experience. Mysterious, tremendous, fascinating, awesome. Something that makes the, uh, Otto used the phrase creature feeling. It makes the subject feel very small, as if one realizes one is faced with something that's totally out of the ordinary, totally beyond the ego.
0: So, is it fair to say that our sense of God, God as a presence, that that's an (laughs) archetype, that there's an archetype inside us for God?
1: Yes, yes. Um, There's there's one way of saying it would be that there's there's an archetypal potential in the individual it's but it's like an empty envelope it, it's it's just it's simply the human potential to experience that where that has a capital t as it were and then um at certain usually at certain times in, of one's life when there's a crisis or suffering of some kind that's when the um the ego the everyday personality is a little bit more fragile than usual because you're suffering or distressed or in pain or depressed or something and then as it were the boundary between the everyday ego the ordinary you and me personality the boundary between that and the transpersonal dimension or the spiritual dimension of the psyche gets a little thin or the veil gets lifted because the The hegemony of the ego, the rulership of the ego, can't be maintained when it's suffering. And that's when you get these eruptions of numinous experience. So typically you see it during periods of stress.
0: Now, now you know, thinking about God as an archetype, if you will, Mm -hmm. something that is in all of our psyches, as an empty envelope, to use your phrase, Mm -hmm. It seems like a lot of people might find that offensive. Like, no, yes. there's something outside. It's not this potential in yes. the psyche. Like somehow we're making yes. God less than what yes. God is. Well,
1: this exactly you put your finger on uh, what was called the Jung Jung Buber disputations. This, what you just said is exactly, almost exactly what Martin Buber, the famous Jewish theologian, said to Jung. He Uh, briefly, uh, to summarize a long argument, he accused Jung of what he calls psychologism. He said that the divine must transcend the psyche, it must be beyond the psyche, and that when Jung says these experiences are psychological experiences, he's he's reducing something transcendent to something which is quote only psychological, as if that meant it wasn't real. Um, And What Jung could never quite get across to Buber was that that the psyche is real, consciousness is real, so that when an experience is a psychological experience, and all experience is essentially psychological, the psyche is the organ of experience, the psyche is real, so the experience is real. So if you have a numinous experience, it's an experience of something which is real, which actually exists, And and that argument between them never really got resolved. And um I don't think it's ever been quite quite resolved. It depends whether you think the psyche is real or not.
0: Help me understand that. I think I understand the psyche is real side. Help me understand Buber's side of the argument. Just pretend. Well, Buber's you are, yeah. side
1: was that what we call God. Buber is a, is a traditional essentially a traditional Jewish theologian. So he so he and probably Christian theologians as well would like to have a transcendent image of God. In other words, it, it would have to be... Whatever the psyche is, whatever consciousness is, It would have to, the God that they worship would have to be somehow beyond that, transcendent of that. And their complaint to Jung is you're making the experience of the divine imminent, too imminent. You're making it... In other words, instead of God... The move that Jung makes is saying instead of having a transcendent God which is out there, I want to locate it deeply within human subjectivity. In a famous comment, Jung said, every night you have the chance of experiencing the Eucharist when you go to sleep, in your dreams, he meant, because you can experience the sacred in a dream in the form of a numinous encounter in a dream. And And when that happens... It's a psychological experience, but you can't dismiss it as, quote, only a dream, as if that meant the experience was not real or it wasn't an experience of something actual. Because the, the dream is, the, the, the imagery in the dream is an image of something real. So even though it's an imminent experience, um, that doesn't mean it's somehow not the real thing. It's still an imago dei, it's still an experience of the sacred or the holy. And the Boober sort of attitude is, it can't be. That's the the, the divine is transcendent of, of all that. So that's one reason that Jung was not popular with the theologians. He makes it too imminent.
0: Now, see if you can follow me here. It seems that if mm-hmm. I were tracking with you on this religious Mm -hmm. function of the psyche, it might mean that if all of the religions of the world that were currently Mm -hmm. in existence were to go away, Mm -hmm. the psyche would still have this need to somehow have a set of questions answered or for there to be images that would address it, that this is something that lives inside us as a need, as a drive.
1: Yes, well, what you just said is really a paraphrase of a comment of Jung, which is that if all the world's religions were abolished, simply new numinous imagery would appear and the whole thing would start again, just for the reasons that you said, because the the psyche spontaneously produces this kind of imagery. And it's very important to understand that from Jung's point of view, there's no need for conflict between the traditions, because all the traditions The experience is always arising from this mythopoetic, transpersonal level of the psyche. So you can't say that any one of the traditions is somehow more real or more true than any other. They're all coming from the same place.
0: Now, I've heard some people say that psychotherapy could be considered a new religion of our time. Yes, that was yes. founded just a hundred years ago, and I'm curious how you see
1: that. Well, this is a—it's a debate. Um, on one side, there are people who don't like that idea because they, they want psychotherapy to be a purely secular pursuit. You know, or, you know, some of them even think it's a scientific pursuit, which I personally think is an abhorrent idea, but. There is that point of view, and then there are other people who say it's possible to approach the psyche, um, not as a religion exactly. See, if you say it's a religion, you're talking about a, you know the traditional distinction between a religion and spirituality is that a religion has a sacred text and a tradition and a long history and a hierarchy and rules and regulations and a creation myth and all that, and certainly. The psychotherapy doesn't have much of that. It's only 100 years old. But, but it's possible to approach the psyche with reverence as a, as a spiritual practice. That's what my last book was about. It was about psychotherapy as a spiritual practice. Because, we, because the psyche, as John Dowley pointed out, the psyche is sacramental. Because if it's true that the sacred or the holy can manifest itself in the psyche then by definition that makes the psyche sacramental. So you can approach psychological material um, reverentially as a, as a spiritual practice.
0: Now help me understand what you mean by this word sacramental, the psyche is sacramental.
1: Well, uh, simply a manifestation of the sacred or a sign or a symbol of the sacred, pointing to the sacred, a container for it if you like.
0: And you're talking about psychotherapy as a spiritual practice from the yes. perspective of the therapist or analyst, from the perspective of the client, both?
1: Both, both, yeah. It doesn't have to be psychotherapy. I mean, just, just paying attention to your own dreams and uh, those kind of experiences is a spiritual practice. It's, it's, it allows you to get in touch with the transpersonal dimension.
0: Now, this whole arena of people looking at their lives and saying, Mm -hmm. I'm spiritual, but not religious, that I feel I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not religious, more and more people are identifying with that phrase. And yet it brings up certain questions for people. If I'm spiritual, but Mm -hmm. not religious, what happens when I get all confused? I'm not quite sure i can't turn to a text i can't turn to a priest or a rabbi my community is kind of diffused what do i do with my confusion
1: yeah. well that's a that's a good question it's it's one of it's one of the drawbacks of this of, of this approach is that there there aren't really organized communities with with fixed texts i, I do think that's a, a deficiency of, i mean what you could do um, is, you know you can find someone to talk to who's who Who has a, a sufficient understanding of the of the situation that you're in like a therapist or a friend or somebody that you can talk to you need a reflecting consciousness but but there is no the, the, really there is no ultimate authority we don't have a pope or a hierarchy, so confusion might be the order of the day. What's wrong with being confused?
0: I think sometimes with being confused there can be a sense that Perhaps I'm not progressing. Perhaps I'm wasting my time. I'm rotting, that kind of thing.
1: Hmm. I think if you really felt that, it might be a good time to go into therapy, quite honestly. You need, sometimes you need a guide. And the guide should be somebody who's done his or her own journey. And who knows some of the milestones and some of the pitfalls? But I don't think that's essential. I, I you know, I think uh, sometimes you can get through these kind of things. For example, in uh, using a, in a dream group, or just with a with a knowledgeable friend. Um. I, I mean, are you suggesting that you have to have some kind of spiritual authority? I don't really like the idea of a spiritual authority, to be honest.
0: I think my question has to do with, given that so many people are in this place of saying, I'm spiritual but not religious, how can they, what create the support and guidance for their lives that traditional religions used to provide? How do we get that in this time that we're in?
1: Well, I think you're pointing to the fact that we don't have adequate community for people who are in that position. I think that's just the situation that we're in. We're in a transitional period. We're at the end of the Christian era. The Christian era is clearly coming to an end. And um we um we don't know what's going to replace it. Um there are there's a small group of Jungians who who've talked about what they call the new dispensation um which is the notion that um it was coined. The phrase was coined by Edward Edinger, who was a Los Angeles analyst about twenty years ago. Briefly, he said that in the West we, we first we, we had the Hebrew dispensation, the Mount Sinai dispensation. Dispensation here means the the dispensing of divine grace into the world. Initially carved in stone on the Ten Commandments, and then you had the Christian dispensation, where you have a radical change of the God image from a sort of sky god on, on a volcano in, in the Sinai Desert to a god of love. And he thinks the new dispensation is this sense that we're all in touch with the transpersonal level of the psyche and that we can have our own connection to that, what the Jungians call the ego self-axis, where you have the ego, the everyday consciousness, has direct connection to the transpersonal dimension in dreams and visions and synchronistic events and things like that. But we don't have, I mean, the nearest thing we have in terms of community would be things like the Friends of Jung groups around the country. There are now lots of um, lay organizations in, in many cities in this country and around the world which get together and listen to lectures and do dream groups based on Jungian psychology. But that's the nearest thing that we have.
0: So what I hear you saying is that in the midst of this new dispensation, the need for community is something we're going to have to creatively inquire into and resolve as a group.
1: Yeah, I don't think we have it really at the moment, you yeah. know.
0: Now, Lionel, I'm curious, especially hearing about your recent experience of illness, how you view suffering on the spiritual path? I know that's a big question.
1: Yeah, it's a huge question. Um, Um, essentially, well, there are several ways to approach it. I mean, one, uh, first of all, um, unless you believe that what happens to us is random, um, that suffering can be seen as part of the destiny of the individual, part of what Jung called the telos, T-E-L-O-S, of the personality, which is a word he got from Aristotle, essentially meaning that the personality has a goal or an end or purpose that it's pointing to. And then your suffering is trying to uh, move you in a a particular direction that perhaps you otherwise wouldn't take. So it's teleologically important. Um, It's spiritually important because developmentally, suffering makes you look at aspects of yourself and your relationships and your work and so on, which otherwise you might be able to ignore. That's what happened to Job, for example. Suffering makes you alter your God image. When people suffer, they're often dissatisfied with the kind of image of God that, of the religious tradition that they grew up in, and it makes them rethink their way of thinking about spirituality, so it can change your spirituality. It can have a very powerful effect on character structure. It can make you much more receptive and open and empathic to other people, um, and so on. It has all kinds of transformative psychological effects which otherwise wouldn't happen. So it's very significant developmentally. You can look at suffering um, in terms of what's called liminality. This is a, uh, a bit of an unusual word that was coined by the anthropologists by um, Arnold van Genep about 100 years ago. And it's, it's the middle, liminality is the middle phase of a rite of passage. Tribal cultures, they usually divide rites of passage into three, an initial period of separation where you're taken out of your usual environment. And then the middle period is the transitional period of betwixt and between. And then finally you're reincorporated back into the culture in the new status. But the dangerous period where people break down is the middle transitional period. That's called liminality. The Latin word, "limen." means a threshold. So it's, it's betwixt and between. You're not out of the old situation fully. You're not in the new situation fully. And it's these transitional periods when people break down emotionally. So suffering plunges you into liminality. Well, if um, the Jungians are right about this, this is an archetypal process. It's not just a random misfortune which is happening to you. It's it's important to you developmentally and spiritually. It's intended to initiate you into a new level of consciousness. It will make you aware of things that you hadn't been aware of before. Um, so, in a nutshell, those are some of the ways of looking at it. I mean, there, are, I, I, there I could go on about it. It's a huge subject. But...
0: I was quite interested in what you were saying about this teleological approach to our life, mm-hmm. that there's yeah. some destiny in our life that suffering can help us understand and I'd be curious to know from your own illness passage recently was something revealed about the directionality in your own life
1: well I think um, the effect that it had on me was to deepen my own spirituality I mean it's um My own interest actually is in non-dual spirituality as well. So so there were many, many experiences during the course of this whole illness that allowed me to practice um, a sort of attitude of radical acceptance and what's called resting in awareness, those kind of practices. Uh, And that had a profoundly deepening effect for me. And uh, so that was teleologically, developmentally, it gave me a kind of thrust that uh, I think it, it was helpful um, in sort of speeding up a developmental process. you could say it that way.
0: Lionel, in some of your writing on spirituality beyond religion, you talk mm-hmm. about what it means outside of belonging to a religion to stay connected to the sacred in our lives. And I'd be mm-hmm. curious to know what do you think are some of the ways that we can stay connected to the sacred? Without religious support,
1: you mean without a community support or without a fixed tradition? Is that yeah, what you mean? yeah, yeah. Um, well, there are several things. I, I think uh, paying attention to your dreams is very important. Uh, the, the difficulty there is that it's 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 often hard to understand the dream, but just paying attention to them and writing them down is, is very useful. Um, because in this Jungian tradition, the dreams, the the maker, the self, the transpersonal self, the self with a capital S, is the maker of dreams. So that paying attention to the dreams is um, is an important way of staying in touch with that. It's as if the self is trying to reach the everyday personality or the ego and trying to fill in the gaps or or make the ego aware of what's missing or compensate if it's too one-sided, that kind of thing. So it is intrinsically a spiritual practice. Um, The the reason that paying attention to emotion is important is because the, the self, this is a little conceptually a little difficult, but the self embodies itself or incarnates by means of emotion. Um, if um, the the way that the, the self is felt in the body is in the form of emotion, if you're having an intense emotion—fear, depression, anger, whatever it is—you um, can think of that as as the what Jung the way Jung describes this. He's, he describes that as this the attempt of the self to incarnate to embody itself.
0: That's very interesting to me. You know, you can definitely hear. Spiritual teachers talk about you know transcending emotions and not paying too much attention. They're just passing weather formations, that kind of thing. yeah, you're saying something quite different
1: yeah, I guess I am um the trouble is both are true um but um,
0: that's okay. You can trouble us with that kind of thing that's okay
1: well i it's a i mean I'm afraid paradox is part of the course here but but, but um, if you, let's suppose you uh, have what Jung calls a complex, in other words, some kind of emotional difficulty which causes you anxiety or depression or something. Um, let's suppose you, you had some difficulty with a very common kind of problem with a mother or father, and so you, you um, are prone to depression or anxiety or, or something like that. When the complex takes over, the, the important point for Jung is that the, at the core of the complex is the archetype. It's not simply the personal mother or father, but the archetypal mother or father. So when the complex grips you and you're in the, in, in the grip of panic or anger or sadness or whatever it is, you could say that you're gripped by this spiritual principle. The archetype is like a, a spiritual presence at the core of your emotional suffering. And the way it embodies itself is by producing emotion because emotion is raw autonomic nervous system activity in the body. So the archetype, I hope this doesn't sound too abstract, it has an, in the dream it appears as an image. In the dream or the vision it appears as an image. In the body it appears in the form of emotional intensity, you know, a pounding heart, sweating, goosebumps, that kind of thing. All those would be the effect of the archetype in the body because mind and body are not two different things. They're two aspects of the same reality. So it's true to say that they, they are transient sort of energetic manifestations in the body and that they will pass. If you simply watch them, they come and go. But that doesn't rule out the fact that they have this archetypal embodiment component at the same time.
0: You know, Lionel, another way to talk about what we've been talking about would be to use a phrase like personal spirituality, that somebody could develop their own personal spirituality. And I'm curious, if you had to speak in a personal way, what would you say is your personal spirituality?
1: Strange question, isn't it? Because spirituality is not really personal in the sense that the spirit is transpersonal, so I suppose one one could say, what is one's individual way of relating to that dimension? Mm-hmm. Um, so you you could um, you could adopt an existing tradition, or you could go the and or you could go the Jungian way of looking at your dreams and synchronistic events and numinous experiences. Um, which are highly individual and unique and tailored. So in my case, I'm particularly interested in in non-dual forms of spirituality, which are very ancient, found in several traditions. And the link to Jung there is that Jung thinks that the self, the capital S self, is the totality of consciousness, which is a very non-dual way of thinking. And then on the other side of that, you, um, when we talk about the ego self-axis, or the individual personality in relation to the self and its manifestation through dreams, then it becomes unique and tailored to the individual. So I don't find any in- inconsistency. I sort of in my own life, I sort of bridge between those two.:, You, know, I, you, you have to work out something that, uh, that's individually useful for you. Other than that, you have to you you just have to go to a tradition and see what what the book says, and that's what William James calls second hand religion. You know, it's reading a book about what happened to somebody else.
0: So, Lionel, I, I think I'm following you in terms of the recommendations you've made about staying connected to the numinous in our life. But in terms of this whole question of personal spirituality, I'd be Mm. curious to know how you relate to the idea of faith or trust. Faith, Faith, Mm -hmm. trust, trust in reality, and what is it that you have faith in, would you say?
1: Well, it depends what you mean by faith. Um, I mean that of course, there are different approaches to faith, but but um, I think faith is very important, and um, th- there there are writers who talk about faith as uh, a developmental achievement based on the development of basic trust in infancy. You know, w- uh, people. Th- there are some psychoanalytic writers like Eric Erickson who say that you have faith, you develop faith when you have enough instances in, in early infancy of, of uh, your needs being met by uh, a mother or father who's attentive to you so that you, you learn to develop trust that the universe will bring you what you need because you've had many experiences of that in infancy. There are other people who think that faith is just a kind of infused act of grace that's given to you um, where you have just a sort of an intuitive sense that there's a larger reality that there is something beyond the personal, beyond the individual. Um, I think both those might be true. Um, But um, it's otherwise very difficult to know where faith comes from. Some people seem to have it and some people don't have it. um, In other words, it might be an archetypal endowment or it might be developmentally achieved. I'm not really sure which it is, to be perfectly honest. Um, my own faith is, uh, and certainly what Jung would say, is that faith comes if you have sufficient experiences of the transpersonal dimension. Um, then you have knowledge. In the famous BBC interview with John Freeman, he, when he was asked about whether he believed in God, he said, I don't believe, I know. And what he meant by that is is that if you have a direct experience of the transpersonal, of the spiritual dimension, you don't need to have belief. But belief isn't quite the same as faith, I think. Faith is somehow deeper, and belief is more cognitive. So it's a a difficult distinction, I think. Belief is belief in a, a set of principles or doctrine or dogma. Faith is a more kind of intuitive trust that there's a transpersonal dimension.
0: And would you say that's your faith, that you would summarize it by to saying? To me, I
1: think it is, yeah. Yeah, that
0: there is a transpersonal dimension.
1: Yeah, I think that is. You know, but it's based on experience. I'm hesitating because you could say that's knowledge. I mean, once you've had the experience, you know that it's there. It's not something you need to believe, or you you don't need faith. It depends how you define faith.
0: Well, let's go with knowledge, because it's not so much the word that I'm interested in. I'm interested to know, here, after all of your experiences and your study Mm -hmm. of the psyche, your work Mm -hmm. with your own suffering and the suffering of other people, what do you have confidence in? What do you know?
1: Well, I... I, I'm with Jung in believing that the personality has a telos, that there is a kind of destiny that the individual is living out. That the, the the what happens to us is not random, that it that it's guided by the self. So that's I guess if you wanted to know what my faith is, I I have faith in that.
0: Thank you. That's powerful. I'd love to know also, because I was very moved by hearing you talk about the numinous experience that you had six years ago, I'd love if you could share with us another such experience from your life.
1: Well, um, another experience was another visionary experience. I think visionary experiences are actually rather important because they're rarely talked about. People are often embarrassed um, about talking about having had a vision because it sounds a little crazy. So, um, But a lot of people have had visionary experiences. And um, many years ago, um, I had the experience of just, I happened to be looking up into the sky. And uh, I saw a huge face in the sky looking down at me. This was a, a, a very numinous experience. It meets all those criteria of Otto, mysterious, tremendous, fascinating. And it gave me that kind of confidence and faith, if you like, that there is something, as it were, um, seeing me, looking at me. This is what Jung meant when he said that um, as you individuate, as you develop, the ego becomes aware that it is what he called the object of a superordinate subject. In other words, you realize with these kind of experiences that something is aware of you. And that was a direct experience of something transpersonal that was aware of me.
0: Now that's interesting. Something is aware of us. That's interesting. What do you mean? Not not necessarily like a being being aware of us, or what do you mean?
1: Well, the word thing is a mistake there. it's, it's I mean, you know, it's it's tricky language here because it's not an, I don't think of the divine as an entity or a thing or a very big person in the sky. So it's not that kind of thing which is aware of us, but that there is a larger intelligence, there's an organizing principle or um, the intelligent order of the universe or something is aware of the individual, something like that. It's hard to put into words. I don't think of it in in theistic terms
0: Okay Lionel I just have one final question for you Mm -hmm. This program's called Insights at the Edge and I'm always curious to know what someone's edge is meaning what they're working on right now really in their inner growth life what's their current edge
1: Oh well, um, you mean professionally or academically or personally? More personally. More personally. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm. Uh, I guess I'm working on how you integrate uh, non-dual spirituality with with Jungian thinking. Uh-huh. That's in my own life. I mean, that's it's yeah. a very interesting combination because. Much of Jung is dualistic, the notion of the ego self-axis. But when when the self is the totality, it's no longer dualistic. So I'm trying to bring those things together, and it's, it's an interesting journey.
0: That's a beautiful answer. Thank you. I've been talking with Lionel Corbett. With Sounds True, Lionel has created a six-session audio learning series called... Spirituality Beyond Religion, The Direct Experience of the Sacred. Lionel, thank you so much for the conversation and for being with us on Insights at the Edge.
1: It's a pleasure. I enjoyed being with you.
0: Soundstree.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.